welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the evening service of Sunday the 26th of September 2010 and here to present a special talk on her recent missionary work to Kenya is Shelley Curtis. Hello everyone. <laughs> um, I'm not really, uh, I just want to start by just saying thank you to everyone for all of your support and um, the money you gave and for all the prayers. I know that everyone was praying for me and believe me, I knew that you were praying. Um, And I just, I can't even express to you how much that meant out there. There's lots of times when, you know, it just, it was difficult, but I know that God was with me. Um, As you can see, I'm in full um, Kenyan outfit this evening. This would be... um, This would be a typical Kenyan uh, dress. Most women would wear something like this on a daily basis. They would wear something very, very colorful, very dressy, um, any shoes, high heels, anything. But they'll be walking on rubble, usually. Amazing. Um, And they'll usually always wear a head wrap as well. Um, Now, um, (laughs) obviously I'm not Kenyan, but um, I did love, I love the clothes, um, love the way that everyone made such an effort with the way that they, uh, the way that they dress. Um, I'll show you some pictures later on of um, some of the people dressed in their traditional clothing. Um, I'm going to, as you well know, I'm, uh, I'm very nervous, but also, uh, um, I don't tell stories very short. Uh, I tend to go on and on and on. So I've tried to, con- you know, somehow put four months into um, into pictures, really. I was going to have music, but I thought that would probably be too emotional for me personally, trying to tell you the story. Um, so just um, a lot of it is pictures, and at the end I'm going to show you some video as well that I got of the children and different places that I, I went that so you can see a little bit more in real life how it was. Um, I've started with a really lovely picture of some of the wonderful creatures that were in Africa. Um, we went to uh, the national... This is pretty, oh, probably about three days after I got there. The Canfields decided to take me to the National, like the National Nairobi Museum, and the kids were just playing around, you know, as they do. And on this post was this huge thing, which uh, really I just thought I'd share with you. Um, this is obviously Hannah and Caleb. There's uh, um, Hannah and Abby. Um, there's quite a few pictures in here just to give you an update of what they're doing and how they are. So this is the, these are the girls. Um, this was some really beautiful um, artwork that we saw in the museum. It's all made of glass and just incredible. And then this is dinosaur <laughs> um, findings that they found, I'm not sure exactly where, somewhere in Africa. And um, aloe vera, absolutely humongous. I mean, obviously you can imagine it's a tropical climate, so there's lots of very beautiful flowers um, and really bright colors, which is just typical of Kenya. This was my first home. Um, this was the Camfields house when I arrived. Now, um, I'm not sure it's probably what you really expected me to be living in. Um, this was my balcony. It was a very small balcony. Um, the house they're living in was in Kasarani, which um, is about, about 45 minutes to an hour away from the main city of Nairobi. Um, the surrounding areas, this included, are very poor areas. Um, within that, the, there's like compounds that have been built, which are pretty nice homes to, compared to a Kenyan's home. 
but the security is very poor. So as you can see, literally everything was barred. Everything was, um, uh, you had, as you can see, barb barbed wire and glass that they put in the top so that if anyone tried to get over, and it was all open at the back here, so anybody could come in really. So they, they had security everywhere I went, pretty much anywhere I stayed, there was really heavy security. Um, and just, just to the back here, we go looking, you can almost see some buildings at the back there. That was a, a place called Zimmerman, which is a very famous sort of area for um, crime and all sorts of things. So the military were heavily guarding it. There was one particular night whilst I was in bed, and I took a while to sort of start sleeping well. When you move to a new place, it's always that way, I think. Mosquitoes, uh, you know, we had to sleep in nets, you know, you had to sleep in a under a mosquito net. Um, but anyway... Uh, I'm laying there about 3 o'clock in the morning and I can hear what I thought was this repetition of sound and thinking, oh, that sounds odd. I don't know what that is. And a little bit later it carried on again and it was, it was gun, gunfire, which often happens in this area because there's a lot of crime. So the military or the police just basically gun people down. If they've been caught thieving or any sort of Whatever. In fact, the, the, it's very corrupt there. The police, the, the sort of security systems that are in place are very corrupt. So most of the time they can just kill, kill anyone for any reason. So, um, yeah, so that was one time when I was, you know, praying. Everywhere was barred, everywhere. And that, that was really strange. I, I wasn't really expecting that. Um, and where they lived, like at night, you'd have to come upstairs and there'd be more bars, which you had to lock yourself in upstairs so that if someone got into the lower part of the house they couldn't get upstairs and if they did you had time to but you couldn't escape if they got upstairs all of this was barred just like you can see here there's no way out so it's a very very interesting way of um securing yourself in a place um this is um this is in the village i was living for the first you know couple of months and this is still in kasarani almost everywhere that you see mothers carrying their babies they always have them wrapped up on their back that's how everybody carries their children. And the children sometimes are as big as three and four years old, and they still have them carrying them on their backs. Because they're walking for miles and miles, so often they can't, you know, they don't have push chairs, they don't have anything. The, the easiest way to carry them is just to tie them up on their back. So this is Caleb and I. And this is the market. This was where we walked every day, really, um, to get f fresh fruit or vegetables. Um, and everywhere in Kenya, everyone just makes their own stall. They, they build it out of wood, um, put it together, put themselves a little shelter from the sun, and they'll sell whatever it is that they can sell. Um, many of them will have shambas, and they'll grow their own fruit and vegetables, and then they'll sell them every day, and they'll be out there from really early in the morning till sometimes 10, 11 o'clock at night trying to sell just a few things, just a few pieces of fruit or vegetables. The only problem is everyone's trying to do the same thing. So you can have, literally, walking down one road, you could have as many as 30 or 40 stalls selling practically the same thing. So everyone's just, as, as long as they can sell a couple of items, they have enough to buy food for that, for that evening. And most Kenyans will eat one meal a day. They'll mostly eat a dinner. Um, they'll have chai in the morning, which will have hot tea. Most Kenyans then will just wait until the evening, until they get home and they'll eat. If they have anything, it'll be maybe some rice and beans. Um, this is Joy Market. This is where we shopped pretty much for everything. Um, I'm going to show you, in amongst all of this, just lots of wildlife that I came across whilst I was there because I thought it was beautiful. This is 
the other extreme. Within Nairobi, <laughs> they have the rich and the very poor, and it's all literally within a few yards of each other. Um, this hotel is like right in the middle of Nairobi city, like right in the center. And this is where I think they're trying to get some of you to stay when, if you come out for the 2012 crusade. And although it would be expensive for a Kenyan, for you it would be fairly cheap. Um, this is just cactus. Um, huge. I've never seen them so big. And uh, they were everywhere, everywhere you went. Um, Santon is the church that I worked with the most while I was out there. That was the Camfields Church. Um, the Camfields have gone out there to work in the Bible Institute, but they have been working really predominantly with um, um, teaching two nights a week. Tom teaches in the Bible Institute. He teaches the Kenyans uh, sort of almost like a diploma in Bible but he's not teaching in the Bible college itself. And then he also and Denise work helping this church. There's some missionaries that went out there called the Messlers. They've been out there for 17 years. And they, they started about four or five churches all in this area that I've just been talking to you about, Kasserani, Lucky Summer, Santon, um, and Zion Road, which were all in a, probably a few miles of each other. And they started uh, lots of churches, and then they got the Kenyan pastors in to, to pastor the churches. So this is Pastor Lawrence in the pulpit, and um, oftentimes he would preach in English. Um, English and Kiswahili are actually the official languages. And I don't know if you know the history, but obviously Kenya was an English colony. It was settled by English, and so in 63 it was taken, it was then Republic of Kenya. Um, and since then, English and Kiswahili are the official languages, but most of the time, if you're in the rural areas, obviously they don't know any English, so they'll do both. They speak in, in both, so that there's a very poor church, so a lot of the people speak very limited English. Um, <clears throat> this is just the kids playing outside. This is outside the church. Um, and some of these pictures were from the very first Sunday that I was there. If you say to any, if you go and try and take a picture of the children, um, they all just scream, picture, picture, you know? And you can have one picture, you'll say to someone, okay, I'm going to take a picture of this child. And within about a second, there's like 10 children in the photo. And I don't even know how they did it. It was a mirror. And somehow they all managed to get their head in. Um, so <laughs> they loved pictures. And obviously now a digital camera, the fact that they could see the picture was so exciting. They thought it was the coolest thing. Um, there are so many children um, wherever you go. Uh, Santon was a very poor area. Um, not as poor as some areas I went to, but it was poor. And we met in this little tin building. It's very, very, very small. And usually on a Sunday, we'd get anywhere between, um, probably between 40 and 60 children in a tiny room. Um, and then this was just my class. The other class were the younger ones, was about the same amount. The problem is, is that a lot of times the children will come in with their siblings, you know, babies and mums, you know, just give them all the kids to take with them. So the kids will come with them strapped on their backs um, to Sunday school. Uh, so you have a lot of screaming babies with no one really to look after them. And uh, that ended, ended up being the way it was pretty much every Sunday. Um, and the interesting part was there was obviously the service going on next to you when Pastor Lawrence was preaching. 
there was the young Sunday school class going on behind me, which was just a tin room, so you could hear everything. Me trying to teach over that, which you're kind of shouting. And I had the children for about three and a half hours because we would teach Sunday school, we'd have a break, we'd teach children's church while the preaching was going on, and then people would be there for a while afterwards. So in the end, you'd be there for about three and a half hours, which is a long time to keep the children occupied. Um, but also you'd have to shout because there was a, uh, quite a charismatic church that just opened. They built themselves next door and they had this big speaker outside which just blasted the music. So you tended to have to shout over so much noise, um, which was, it was interesting. Um, the one thing that's amazing or was amazing to me is the children find absolutely anything to play with. They'll, they'll create a toy out of nothing. Um, you know, I've never seen anything so creative. The children would make, girls would make dolls out of plastic bags and wire, and they'd stuff them with um, old rags or anything they could. They'd make a head out of a sock, you know, and they'd tie it and stuff it with anything they could stuff inside. And they'd make this doll out of and string, and they'd detach string to the hair for the hair on the head. Um, and amazing. They were just incredible. And anything they could find, they played with. Um, these are just the children in the Sunday school at Santon. This is a girl named Rachel. And obviously these children I got to know really well because they were, they were there pretty much every Sunday that I was there. Um, now, I did a theme on... Um, on the, when I first got to Kenya, I really felt the Lord was asking me to do something about the body. And, you know, um, in Africa generally their bodies go through a lot you know even at a very young age they they um they suffer a lot of injuries just from falling and it's such rough terrain and um there's not a lot of safety in that you know the kids are out there with no shoes on and not very many clothes on and so it's really tough and so we we did this theme on the body so we did the feet and the hands and eyes and ears and mouth and what they could use those parts of their bodies for so we um I did this theme, which you can see is here now, over here on the side. Um, we made this. Uh, the actual, the children made two of these. One was for them, and it's hanging in their Sunday school now. And the other was for here, so that the children here could see. And they all drew their feet, and they went round and traced their feet on the, on the sheet and filled them in and put their names so that they could send a piece of them back here. Um, <clears throat> Rainy season. Rainy season hit after about two weeks of me getting there. Well, maybe not even that. Maybe a week after I got there. So it's all beautiful. First day. No, actually, the day I arrived, it was raining. So it was... Um, the temperature was fairly warm most of the time, but evenings were quite cool. And then rainy season hit. And for about two months, it just rained and rained and rained. Um, and the problem is in Kenya... The, the sewers just sort of run down the sides of the street. They're just open sewers. So um, we, you kind of, when it rains, what happens is there's a lot of deaths because this, the rain sort of floods homes, but it floods it with all this sewage. So then they kind of get contaminated. The children get sick. The parents get sick. And obviously they don't have anything to clean it with. or to, to, That's all they have is their home. It's usually very basic in the first place. So there's a lot of deaths at this time of year because people um, have no way of guarding against that sort of floods of rain that come. Um, obviously, they're thankful for the rain at the same time. And as you can see, it's just that people just get on with it. But it's red clay. The ground is not just like dirt. It's red 
clay. And so it's, um, it was interesting. And I was telling mom the other day, I went out on the first walk with Hannah and Caleb and Abby, and we're like, well, let's just go up to, this, to the market and we'll have a wander around. So there I am in my walking shoes. And we go stepping out and we're, we're trying to dodge traffic and the cars there drive like crazy. I mean, it's just, the roads are crazy. And because the roads are so bad, it's not particularly safe. So you're trying to, there's no paths on the side of the roads. There's nothing like that. So we're trying to dodge the sewage and the cars at the same time. So we're trying to jump over this hole, this ditch, which is full, just a running sewage. And we, obviously the kids all jump fine. Me, I miss, go one foot in. This is in my uh, brand new walking shoes. I said, well, that taught me a lesson. Didn't even matter whether I had walking shoes on or not. Um, um, as you can see here, this is what I was... And people are still outside working in this because they have no choice. If they don't sell anything that day, they don't have any money to eat. Generally, that's how it is for everyone. So um, when the floods happen like this, it's really, it's really, really difficult for a lot of people. And this is one of my favorite things. On the side of the road, they'll be selling anything, like I said, but fresh corn. They'll be grilling it on the side of the road. This is what happens all the time. They're grilling the corn. Um, and like I said, the roads, people walk everywhere because there's no paths anywhere. So people just walk in the road, people walk wherever they can walk. Um, and the cars have no, there's no road rules whatsoever. None. I mean, it says, it doesn't even matter if you're supposed to be going down on the left-hand side, people are coming at you from the, from the same lane. They're driving towards you. That's how it was most of the time. I was there for four months and I was in three accidents in four months. So that just shows you how bad the roads are. So you can pray for missionaries just purely out of um, safety. You feel like, <laughs> you get used to it, but you do feel like, wow, this is, every time you get in a car, there's, um, you know, very dangerous. Uh, another common sight, women carrying uh, any manner of things on their back, absolutely incredible. They have... I don't know how they do it. It was the most amazing thing. They would have piles and piles, like this woman here is carrying... I don't know how many sticks on her back. And then what they'll do is they'll take it back, chop it up, and they'll make coal out of it. And then they'll go and sell the coal to make money. So that's what they do. And they'll go and collect this wood from miles away, and they'll bring it back to wherever they're living, and they'll chop it and make it into coal. I tried to get pictures of the roads so that you could understand how bad they are, but there's really no way of sort of describing it. And what they do is if there's, <laughs> if there's a hole or anything like that, they just sort of take massive boulders and just throw them in. And then that's it. That, just leave them like that. And the idea is that they come along and crush them. And some people will come along with, um, you know, axe and whatever it is, chisel, and they'll try and break it down. But most of the time, they just chuck them in and you have to just drive around them. So they think that's safer than holes in the road, which it is. Because what happens is in the rainy seasons, the potholes are so bad that people end up getting killed because they drive into something without seeing because the floods are so bad you can't see the roads and honestly when you see the roads it's bad enough you can't you can't dodge enough things but when the water's there as well you couldn't see anything this is a little boy in the church and it was his first birthday um these were um children they amazed me i mean they were always just lying on the ground or making there was no room anywhere so they just sort of make their own make their own base there's nowhere for them to color. Even that's a basic 
colouring to us seems like our kids would get bored of that after a few Sundays. We said that we were doing that as a craft. They'd be like, oh, not colouring again. Um, these kids love it. There's a word search puzzle to do with a Bible, and then we have a colouring picture. They're only allowed two crayons because most of the time they steal them. And we've got, they've worked on that, and the kids are much better about that. But there's nowhere for them to even do the colouring because there's no, not enough room for them to sit or lean on something. Um, this is Mary. Her dress, it was very funny. The zip was broke, so she came to church like that, came walking in. It was halfway down here, and that's how she wore it the rest of the Sunday, um, trying to fix it in her wellies. <laughs> another, I mean, I think I might have shared this um, with some of you, but, you know, another real problem with the children is um, sanit- like health and hygiene, and uh, it's, just, it's not very sanitary, and they have no nappies, and most of them don't come in nappies. So they just come to church, and if they need to go, they just go. So I learned this on the second Sunday by holding this little one here um, and realizing very soon after she'd fallen asleep that she had nothing on um, and just soaked through. So many times the children come like that, and they're wet. Um, and you can imagine just after a few of the children have come and gone to the toilet. Um, this is Kenyon Dewey. He's... Um, He's one of the boys that I wrote to you about in the letter. Very, very um, lovely, such a lovely child, but he was very quiet, wouldn't really smile, respond, nothing. It took a long time, but eventually, you know, he was smiling and he seemed to come out, started speaking a lot more. This is the toilet at the church. I think I shared that with some of you. Almost all of the toilets in Kenya are like this. They're a hole in the ground, even if this is actually very nice because there's cement there. But actually, most of the time, it's just, a, it's just ground. It's just like they dig a hole, and that's their toilet. Um, it's amazing, though, because the hole's there, but they don't use the hole very often. I don't know how they miss it, but they do. Um, <laughs> some of the missionaries' wives that I had the pleasure of meeting were, were completely shocked because they couldn't believe that I'd even go into a toilet like that. And... Um, they were like, I just wouldn't go. I'd just hold it for a whole day if I had to. I was like, no, I'm sorry, that's not, I can't do it. Um, this is the younger Sunday school class. Um, this was taught by one of the Kenyan ladies in the church, who I'll show you later. Um, these were some of the kids. This is the pastor's son just below me, um, and some of the children that were probably the most faithful of the group. They love football. It is their life. The children absolutely love it, the boys especially. Um, so as soon as I would say I'm from England, the first thing they would say is, oh, wow, you know, Manchester United or Chelsea or Arsenal. That's all they ask me every, every few minutes. Um, now, they had this ball, which I wanted to show you because later on I'm going to show you the pictures of the stuff that you all sent out to me and then using that. Because what happened was it between Sunday school and children's church, they'd have this half an hour break of playing outside, which was almost more difficult to control them because they had nothing to do, so they'd get themselves into all sorts of trouble. Um, but they had this one ball, and it was deleted. But they still played football with it. I don't know, They'd still try their best to play a, a football game, even though it was def- deflated. As you can see, there it is. There's a hole in it. (laughs) The children are, um, like I said, maybe eating one meal a day, very hungry. We would give them two biscuits and a drink whilst they were at church. No, I think they stopped doing the drink because it was too 
difficult to, to monitor, but they were giving them two biscuits. Um, and the children would come. I mean, we used to say that they maybe only came for the biscuits, but they wouldn't get enough. And this little boy here, who's right at the front, it didn't matter how many biscuits he had, he cried. If, as soon as you stopped giving him biscuits, he was crying because he was so hungry, obviously, which was very hard because you couldn't really do anything about it. It was one of those situations. Um, the church does do the food giving, and they do go and give food to the homes that they, that they feel um, are in desperate need. But as you can see, there's so many, so many children, so many homes. Um, in this area specifically, there was a lot of um, Congolese, Sudanese um, coming in that were sort of refugees that were coming into Kenya. And unfortunately, because they have a whole different, in a sense, they have a different culture, they have a different language, the church was, it was becoming really difficult because they couldn't really communicate very well with, with all the different dialects that they had coming in. <clears throat> While I was there, <clears throat> the Chinese are there right now building roads for Kenya. But there's a lot of construction work going on everywhere, but everywhere is just a bit of a mess, like just piles of dirt usually. And kids working out in the roads, beside the roads, just digging um, for whatever they can get that day. And most of the time, they pay them about 100 shillings, which is about, um, about 80p, something like that. Um, lots of people. And these people work for the government. If they go out for the day and they dig, they'll get that amount of money, which is, in Kenya, it's still not very much because that is, Kenya's gone up very much, its inflation has gone up. So the prices of things, I was really shocked how expensive it was to live out there. I was saying um, to Pauline earlier, the water, electricity, um, all of those things, the water shortages are still happening. Electricity goes out all the time. Um, so like the water, you could pay um, a lot of money for a tank of water. And the, the actual city will just shut it off to get money from people. It's very corrupt. So they, there's water. There is water. Because you'll see these big tanks of trucks going along and spraying the roads with water, but not giving the people water because they want to get their money. So they'll make them pay for the, for the water. And that, what they'll do is, tends to, they'll switch it on for about a day or so, and then they'll switch it back off again, um, which is really, really sad. This is just an open market on the sides of the roads. Like I said, there's so many generally second-hand goods. I couldn't believe how much they've got from the West. They've got loads of things in that are like second-hand goods. Obviously, have been donated. These people buy them, and they sell them on the sides of the road, and obviously hiding from the sun. We were right on the equator. And although it was rainy season, it was, still, it was still warm in the day. Like I said, cool at night. But when the sun did come out, you knew it was out. It was so strong. Um, <clears throat> you couldn't be in it for very long. Um, in fact, the very first time I was out at this market, um, I got very badly burnt because I wasn't expecting... I was only, only out for about an hour, and I didn't think that would do anything. I was thinking, oh, yeah, an hour of sun, yeah, it's great. And then realized that it was so strong that you had to really cover up. These are just some of the gardens. <laughs> These are back to the roads again. Um, this was lucky summer. I taught here in the school for two months um, till the end of their sort of holiday season. And the very first time, I'm sure that you've heard this story, I'm not sure, but we got there 
and we're driving in a Matatu, which is their idea of a, a small minivan. Mm. These things are lethal, okay, I'm telling you. They are, and they'll pack about 30 or 40 people in there, and there's probably about, I don't know, maybe 10 seats, 14 seats. Um, and we have one of these. The church, the Messers have bought one, very old one, and they use that to get to sort of like we do with a minibus and transport people. So we go in this, which is just a minivan with just normal tires, and we get, we get to this, which is the... I've never seen mud like it. We're supposed to get to the school. So the guy, Kelvin, he's one of the guys that works for um, Tom and Denise. He's like, yeah, yeah, we can make it. New driver, get stuck, so stuck we couldn't move. So we climb out in the mud, walk the rest of the way to the school. Um, and this was... I had no idea what to expect any time I got somewhere. I was told one thing. One thing you learned about Kenyans very quickly is if they say they're going to be an hour, it's probably about four. And if they tell you there's only going to be two people there, it's probably about 200. If they tell you there's only going to, there's going to be 200, there's two. So I never, ever got what I expected. But I learned that very quickly, and so I kind of had to just adapt. And I had to be ready for just about anything. So I turn up, and I'm told that I'm going to be teaching, oh, I don't know, 15, 20 children. I turn up, there's two. This grew as the weeks went on. Um, this was a very poor school that was run by um, a Catholic lady, and she wanted the children to learn about God. So it was a wonderful opportunity. I got to go in and teach the children and give them the salvation, and just it was wonderful. And these two boys had no English whatsoever, none. So I walked in. Neither did the teaching assistant. This is my second week of being in Kenya. No, absolutely, probably maybe two words in Swahili. So I was really scared. I was thinking, Lord, what am I going to say? They don't understand a word that I'm saying. But I, I had lots of pictures. I improvised, and I had somebody with me that traveled with me um, who sort of was my interpreter if I needed her to be. So we, this is just Lucy here, which is sitting on the right-hand side with the boards there. She was my helper. But we did a lot of this, just nodding and smiling a lot. We had no idea what each other were saying. <laughs> Um, and this is the school that I, second school that I taught at. These are all the teachers. This is Mrs. Messler here in the red, the one that's been there for 17 years, and her husband Mike, which he's not in that picture. Um, Lucy would come with me, like I said. She'd sometimes give them an introduction in Swahili and tell them a little bit, you know, introduce, maybe sing some songs in Swahili. Then I taught them some songs in English. Um, we got there in the Matatu, finally. This was the first time when we broke down we had to walk there, and we get there, and then there's, I'm thinking, I'm teaching maybe 20 kids in a classroom. There's 200 and something children outside in the rubble just sitting, waiting for me. And I remember walking around the corner just thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to teach all of these children? Um, but again, God got me through. They sat and listened. This is the stadium that they're planning to hold the crusade at next in two years' time huge. I think it seats about 60,000 people. Um, this is the school again. These are the small classrooms. And this is where we just taught outside. These are the headmaster here. This is the headmaster on the right. Whenever I got there, and I was not only teaching 200 children, all the, all the teachers stayed as well. So they're all sitting there, about seven of them, and the headmaster. And I was thinking, oh my, as if there's no pressure at all. If I do this wrong, they're never going to have me back. So I was a little bit scared. 
But they seemed to listen, and that was one amazing thing about it. God really gave me the strength because I thought afterwards, not only do I have the chance to teach these children, but also all of these adults were listening to. And every week they remembered so much from the lesson before, which gave me a lot of hope. And afterwards, after the first lesson I taught, the headmaster came up and said, Shelley, the, te- the children really understood you well, which was am- amazing to me. Um, but they understood me well. They said you were very clear and they could, they could understand your English. So they tended to get, hopefully, a lot from the lesson. They would all gather around your feet because they all want to be as close to you as possible. <laughs> this was just, again, some photos of the view from my window. This was just a funny photo. In the middle, I don't know if you can see this, okay, but there's a guy in white. Can you see that? And for outside, I love sitting on my balcony at some times and just watching outside my balcony, outside my bars, and watching people. And people walked for miles. I mean, on the side of the motorway, there's hundreds of people walking to work and back from work. In the middle of this dirt path, in the middle of the highway, he's in the middle of the motorway, really fast traffic moving both sides, and he's doing some sort of martial arts. And he was there for about three hours doing this in the middle of the highway. Yeah, so I had to take a picture. I was like, that's amazing. This is Abby and I. There was many headdresses. We had um, one thing that was, I guess, a challenge at the beginning was at night you have to go in after sort of 4 or 5 o'clock. As soon as sun starts to go in, you've got to get in and you have to be in because it's very unsafe to be outside. Um, so from the very beginning, your nights are all, you're locked in really and barred in and the kids needed some entertaining. So they'd always come knocking on my door and Shelly, Shelly, can we do this? Can we do this? So Abby would like to write me stories and tell me stories. She's very much a creative, uh, creative person. So she'd dress up in all sorts of costume. Um, this is the road going down to where I was living and again you'll see all manner of things you'll see some photos later on people carrying I mean sofas on the back of little bikes just bike just a normal bike um anything and everything stacked higher than I could even imagine crates boxes I've never seen anything like it and people will be riding their bikes like that on those roads and it's amazing this is the Canfield's car now this car, I don't know how it's still alive. In fact, I don't know how any car is still alive out there. They're so honestly battered from, from the roads. Um, but it's a struggle. But we'd fit, I don't know how many people in there at one time, sometimes 10 people. This is a tank, a water tank that they would use to get their water. This is their home, their first home. Um, one thing, that was for Amber, wherever she is. <laughs> And there's some more roads. Um, the, yeah, the salons, these types of things, these little shops and things are everywhere. Just little, little, they're almost just one room, very small rooms, and they, they open them up and, you know, anything and everything. These hair salons, I think they do just about anything. I mean, not just hair. They're just amazing. This is coal. Um, and like I was saying to you before, they would chop up wood and they would break it down and they'd make coal. And this is how they'd sell it in these little tins, like old paint tins. They'd sell buckets like that on the sides of the road. This was my um, fruit store. I used to go to this guy every most weeks and buy um, mechanics. 
amazing. You drive past most roundabouts. Um, they have massive roundabouts. Either in the middle of the roundabout or on the sides, there'd be this just mass of like dry ground, and it would just be an open, open mechanic. They'd just be there breaking down cars and fixing things. I mean, people would just call themselves mechanics and start fixing things on the side of the road. So you'd see this everywhere. There'd just be a whole pile of cars that people were working on. Um, the buses, again, um, everyone's trying to get you into their bus. It's very much about, like, if you're white as well, Mzungu, that's what they call you if you're a white person. Um, if you're a Mzungu, then everybody wants to, to get you in their bus because they want to overcharge you and they want to get money from you because you're rich. That's how they see it. They see every white person the same. Um, so they call you Mzungu, Mzungu, come, come. You know, they try and get you in. Um, this is Thikaro Baptist Church, one of the biggest Baptist churches in Kenya, in the whole of Kenya. And it was started by um, missionaries, the Weavers, which have been there for about 34 years. And they've now moved out a bit further out to the Maasai lands, but this they started about 20 years ago. And there's a Kenyan pastor now taking over, and it's about two or 300 people. It's the biggest Baptist church in Kenya. Again, these are just the sides of the roads. These are just... Trying to give you a, a little bit of an insight. This is funny. This is really just for a joke because keep left unless overtaking. That's about the only road sign I saw in the whole time I was there, which it just made me laugh. This is a Matatu. This is the white minibus that you see. And there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all over the place. Everywhere you look, that's where they are. They take, that's the bus. That's their bus services. And they usually have just blaring music and crazy. They just fit, like I said, 30 or 40 people in there. It costs you about 30, 30 bob, they call it bob, 30 bob, or up to 100 shillings, depending on how far you This is Kelvin, our driver in the Matatu. This is the same school again. Um, every time I went back, there was a few more children, so it got bigger and bigger. But this is the classroom, and very, as you can see, very basic. Chalkboard, that's about all they had um, and just again, just a picture of all the people you'd see every day just walking. This is Pastor Lawrence and his wife, Rosemary. They're the pastor, um, pastor and his wife from Santon Baptist Church, the one that I was working in. And this is just a member of the church, John. The kids had, um, obviously that I was white, but also their obsession with my hair. They'd always want to touch your hair and they'd want to feel it and pull it and see if it was real. So a lot of times the kids would touch my hair whatever point they could or they'd grab hold of it. Most of the time I wouldn't even know. I just had feel this, this child in the back of my head and he was looking to see if my hair was real or if it was tied in or if it was a weave or if it was a wig and they're trying to pull it off. I was like, no, 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 it's real. I promise you don't try and <laughs> pull it off. But there was lots of occasions like that. And most of them, whenever they could get a chance, they'd put their hands on my head. The children were... Um, so receptive to learn, whether it be in school or even in church. They were incredibly well-behaved children, generally. I mean, you always had your one or two, but on a whole, the children just, you know, it didn't feel like I had 60 or 70 or 200 children because they were so well-behaved and generally just so eager. They couldn't believe you were there to teach them. They couldn't wait to hear what it was you had to say. I wish that's how it was in England when I go to teach, but that isn't how it is. But it was such a refreshing um, attitude that they had to learning um, and I found that such a joy to be around children that loved to learn and they wanted to hear about God and they wanted to hear anything you had to say 
These are just some fun. They're so happy. You know, it didn't matter what these children came from on a Sunday morning or even at school. They always, always had a smile on their face, and they were always just happy. Loved singing, as you'll hear in a little while. Everywhere you went, the children were singing, um, which I just thought was, you know, it just you can't help but smile. That's the thing. You can't help but smile when you're around children that are so happy and have so little, you know? Um, there's nothing more humbling than that. Um, I think the hardest part for me, this was one of them, but this little girl here in the pink, she's special needs. She had no verbal speech, and she was also had um, a problem with her legs, so she couldn't walk very well. But out there, special needs, as I'll tell you a little bit about later, is, um, is really uh, kind of where we were maybe 50 years ago. Um, it's, um, they usually hide their children. Um, if they're special needs at all, then they'll hide them. If they're physically impaired, they definitely hide them. But in some worst cases, in most parts of Africa, they actually just um, will just chuck the child or throw it. Basically, they get rid of them. Um, so this is another missionary family that I went to stay with. The Midoris. They've been out there for five and a half years, and she has a child with Down syndrome, which is the eldest blonde girl on the left there. She's 15, um, as sweet as can be. And they are a, an amazing family. They were so good to me while I was there. Um, and they let me stay with them. And she's also the one who, her and a friend of hers, Tracy, who her husband is out there working with Wycliffe, the Bible translation. He's been out there. He's over the whole of um, East Africa. And he lives in Kenya um, with his wife. And he has a son, Simon, who's also severely uh, special needs. And she started Hashima, which is um, the Swahili word for dignity. And it's a special needs center, which is very rare in Africa. There's not really anything like that there for special needs. So it's only, I think they've got about 14 or 15 children. And I'll show you pictures of that later. But this is West Nairobi School. I went here and worked for a couple of weeks right at the end of um, my time. They had quite a few special needs children. This is beautiful. This is a Christian school. Now, you'll find that the education system there is, is one extreme or the other. It's um, The average Kenyan gets about four years of schooling, and it's at primary level. So what they'll come out with, hopefully, is the ability to read a little and write a little and, and have a little bit of maths. Um, the public system, the way it works is that the government provide sort of like a public school like we have here but the public school there you might have a hundred children per class per teacher so you can imagine the sort of level of education a child would come out with if they had no support if they had no real one to one no help really and you're trying to teach a hundred children at once so also there's not enough schools government-run schools for children to go to so most of the time um, the way it works is they will send you to a public school it will be too full so they send you away and most children get no education that's how it is in the majority of africa however also you can send your your child to a school say like a private school well a private school is going to cost you and it's going to cost you a lot anywhere between 30,000 to 60 70,000 kenyan shillings per term and that is as you can tell from what I've told you about an average wage for a Kenyan, there's no way that any anybody could send that, their child. However, there are a lot of rich Kenyans, um, quite a lot of wealthy Kenyans, but it's just the extreme. Obviously, there is a much greater percentage of the poor 
Um, but there is, there, is a, there is sort of not really a middle class. There's not a lot of middle class. So here we have a Christian school, and to be honest, it's probably half white Christian missionary kids or even people that are out there working that are white, that are working for the UN, for the government, for, and they send their children to these kind of schools. Um, as you can see, it's very beautiful. And, I mean, it's such a beautiful surrounding. Imagine being in Africa. It would be... Um, this is Madison again. Madison goes to this school because they have a special needs department, so they say. But I actually was there working with the teacher, the head, the head of the school, because they were struggling with having a variety of special needs and not really having anybody there to help teach or support them. Um, so... For those who are out there who have special needs children, especially those who are, I don't mean to keep saying white, but there's those who are white, they would generally need to pay for an education for their children, but also there's so, li there's so little out there for special needs, they'd find, they have to fight for it, really, to, to get it. So for missionaries, that's one very difficult thing. This is, um, this is where Hashima is. This is um, in Karen, which is about two hours the other way from Nairobi. And it's, um, it's a beautiful place, um, but this is in the slum area, and this is where the special needs center is that Tracy set up. Um, she went around to the slums and started knocking on the doors and saying, have you got any children that have special needs? I'm opening a center. Would you like to bring them? So they were like, no, no, we haven't got any children like that. No, shut the door. But after about weeks and weeks, and she prayed and prayed and prayed, God, please send. She knew there were children hidden, but she, all she could do is go and knock and keep praying. And after a while, slowly but surely, one by one, these children kept turning up at the center from the slums that had special needs. Now, many of them had physical disabilities, very severe, you know. Um, and then Tracy met a doctor out there who was a Christian, and he's been doing surgery on these children for free and fixing, you know, their legs or their feet or their hands and giving them basically incredible. And they're rehabilitating these children and bringing them back to be able to walk. This little girl um, is doing so much better, but she had no legs. She had, she had no legs when she was born. And they would sit her because she couldn't sit up, and they would sit her in a bucket, and she's now sitting up. And he's been helping her with limbs and trying to help her. This is a little boy, his feet, uh, he couldn't walk on them. And he had a surgery as well. This boy is severely autistic. Um, and again, there's no understanding of autism out there. They don't even know what the term is, let alone how to help. So you can imagine the children with that sort of disability, it's completely different than a physical disability. They have no understanding of how, how it, what it means or how to help. So the Lord really used me in that way, and I didn't know if that was going to be how the Lord used me out there at all, but there were many opportunities for me to go in and train staff and help people understand how they could understand the signs of autism and how they could help put things in place to start teaching these children and giving them you know, a better, a better future. Um, these children were so amazing again. They were so happy. You could see they were loving it. They loved this place. They get to go and they get to play. Very basic, again, in its... In its um, in its uh, equipment, but the Lord is blessing. This is Victor, and he just was the sweetest thing. Now, they've had a speech and language therapist come in a little bit. She's gotten professionals in to start putting things in place to help these children. Um, obviously, it's Christian-run, 
a really beautiful place. And this is right in the slum. So you can imagine what this is like for them. This is amazing for them. This is like such high, you know, um, resources. This has all been hand-built by some of the Kenyans. They got them in to, to start building equipment like high chairs for the children to sit up and eat in and, you know, equipment for them to ride on bikes that they couldn't normally ride on and exercise equipment and, you know, all of this, which is just incredible. This was their kitchen, you know, very basic. They, everywhere you go, they either use coals. Um, and when you go into a Kenyan's home and they've used coals, it's like the smell and it's a smoke. The whole room is just smoke, you know. And also they'll use kerosene and they'll just have a little Kalo gas sort of stove that they'll use. But gas to them is also, uh, it's basically a luxury, even to have one of those. So most of it is coal. <clears throat> this is um, the Midori's home, beautiful place. They have rebuilt the whole thing. When they got there, it was just, uh, many of the homes are, are sort of semi kind of English style homes but they've been so run down over the years that nobody ever has the money to fix them up. So over the years, they've been there for five and a half years, they have they had so much land, and this is the thing about Kenya, it's so beautiful and rich in its land and its, you know, its trees and its flowers and it's so pretty. Um, and this is just another insect on my bed, which I wasn't very happy about. I had to kill him. <laughs> I know, but I couldn't... I know, I know. So I'm sorry, but I couldn't handle the fact that he was... I was locked in, and I was like, he either sleeps in with me or... No, no, no thanks. I didn't want to... I didn't want to know. This is Maddie and I. This is the beautiful... They've, they've built this home and the, the guest house, and they use it for missionaries that are coming through. Beautiful place. It was such a blessing. This is just a funny picture. Maasai warriors... Um, this is a famous, this is the giraffe center. I went to, um, and I got to feed the giraffes a warthog. <laughs> they were so beautiful, um, so many animals. This is Lonnie giving him a kiss. And they'd stick their tongues out, and their tongues are so long, huge, scary things. They're just, they're so massive. I mean, you know, just until you see them in real life, it just, you can't understand the gravity of how big they are. This is what you commonly see. Um, um, the Kenyans, if they're on their way back from work, they'll just pile into anyone's van or a truck or anything they can get on the back of because that means they don't have to walk for miles. So this was amazing. What I loved about Kenya is color. It was so bright. You know, it doesn't matter where you go. Everyone's got on bright colors. And you can see that, you know, it's just beautiful. And so this is just packed full. You can see how many people. I mean, hundreds probably in there, a couple of hundred. Bananas everywhere loved that <laughs> um banana trees just on the sides of the roads you know you could just pick them and eat them it's just amazing really cheap as well i mean like two or three bob which is two or three cent kind of pound cent yeah the kids had one toy truck so they'd play with it and pass it on to the next and then they'd keep doing that until then now this is amazing because it was, to me, it was 70 or 80 degrees, and it was still pretty warm. And this is in their cold season. They're freezing. And I'm thinking, you guys, and they're in, I'm telling you, they dress the kids up like it is wintertime. Woolly hats, scarves, jackets, jumpers, tights, socks. I couldn't believe it. And I don't know how, the kids just, it's just normal for them. They invent ways of being, this is, they're making glasses out of flowers. This is Nairobi itself in the city. Um, 
And although it looks built up and it does look pretty modern, if you're there in person, it's still very poor. Even though it is built up and there are new buildings coming all the time, you walk around the streets and you can still tell that you're in a third world country. It's still not, you know... And as you can see, the traffic, I know I thought Birmingham traffic was bad. I'm never going to complain again, really. Because in Kenya, because there's no road rules, they just get stuck. And I mean, we've sat in traffic for maybe four or five hours not moving in the city of Nairobi because people, basically what they do is they keep pulling in when there's no road until there's no way of getting through and nobody will move. And until the police come and literally move each car, you're not going anywhere. And that's what happened all the time. And people never learned. It's like, can you just wait? If you just wait it, no. They wouldn't. These are people planting and sowing um, in their shamba. This was right behind my first house where I was living. Happy Life Children's Home. Um, uh, this is a home for abandoned babies. Um, this was probably, for me, the most challenging of all the things that I did while I was out there. Um, there was about 30 or 40 children, babies, sorry, I should say, um, and all the time there were children being, or babies being just sort of, they found them in dustbins. While I was there, they found them on the sides of roads. One, one baby had just been born, and he was in, on the roundabout, just, just there in the sheet. Um, babies were abandoned all the time and just left really for dead, unless somebody came along and found them or the police handed them in, and most of the time they'd hand them into a place like this, which was a ministry just for children that had been left. There were some cases while I was there where the children were getting taken off their parents, so they were going through a court proceeding and they would get taken out of care, and again, it would go to a home like this. Um, they had both, they had all ages, because some of the children, they can be fostered or adopted from here, but um, as you'll see later, there's so many children. <laughs> um, Kenyans do adopt them, but they're very few that have the money to adopt, so it's not, it's not that common. This is run by a Christian organization in America. I think in Texas, I think there's a couple of churches out there that, are, that sponsor it. So of all the orphanages I visited, this is probably the most well-equipped, even though still it was not well-equipped. But it was, it was clean, and it was, they had a place to sleep, which was um, good. I think the first thing that shocked me when I walked into that orphanage was there was just rows and rows of cribs. Just everywhere you looked, there were cribs with babies in them. And the staff, all they would do is literally pick up one baby, change them, feed them, put them down. Pick up another baby, do exactly the same thing until they got through all 40 children, babies. Then they'd have to do the same thing over again because it'd be time to feed again. By the time we got through that, there were lots of volunteers there from all over the world. I met, because I was there for four months, there was lots of volunteers coming in for two weeks at a time, you know, from Canada, from New Zealand, from... Uh, Finland, from all over. It was amazing. I got to meet some wonderful people. Um, but the hand, there's just not enough hand, there's not enough people. And they don't also have the money to pay any more staff. They have about, I think there's maybe about 15 staff altogether, but there's also older children that are still there that haven't yet been adopted. So there's two parts. Um, this again is the mechanics on the side of the road there. The roads. I don't know how well you can see that. But the rocks and the road, that's just how most roads looked. This is the washing day. <laughs> you just see all of these people out in the grass, and they'd be washing their clothes with buckets and all their bright colors, and they'd be hanging them just about anywhere they could find a place to hang them. So and you'd just see this in the fields. They'd be full on washing days. They'd go and fetch the water from the river. They'd bring it back up, and they'd wash all their clothes and then take them back to their home. This is what I mean. 
This is a guy on a little motorcycle, and he's carrying, I don't know how in the world he's driving that, but it's amazing. I was just so happy I got the picture, because it was hard to get. This is again at Samson. This is Petronilla. She's one of the teachers as well, one of the people that teaches. It's very difficult. They're struggling to get enough money into the church to be able to support um, the church itself because it's such a poor area. So you can imagine giving is very, very low. But also the sta- getting people in to actually work in the church is really difficult. Love dancing. They'll move and clap and sing. And this, little, this guy here... Um, um, he, he came from a very broken background and his brother came with him, but there was a lot of abuse and he was so unhappy. You know, he'd come every Sunday and he'd sit and listen, but I just couldn't get him to say anything. He wouldn't respond. Um, he used to get into a lot of fights, you know, just very, it's just very sad. This again, entertainment in amongst the, there was many days, many days where we couldn't go out. Um, so the children and I would invent ways of having a tea party inside underneath the mosquito net so that we didn't get eaten alive. And this is the orphanage for abandoned babies. This is Emma, one of the ones that, one of the many that I probably would have brought home if I was legally allowed. Um, there are a lot of sick children um, because they'd come from Maybe even they've been brought in at a few months old or six months to a year, but they've been, you know, they're very mal, malnourished. Been a lot of them had been abused. A lot of them had suffered a lot from, you know, all sorts of trauma, and you'd find that they really struggled to just even sit up, walk. Most of them are in cribs 24/7. So um, they, even at two and three years old, they weren't walking. Um, this lady here, and you can't really see it, but she's carrying an axe behind her there. Just another funny picture. You see people carrying those around, whilst carrying a baby on her back. So I don't know what she was using the axe for. This is when I went up to um, Nanuki, um, up into the mountains by Mount Kenya. Absolutely beautiful place. Um, here is where the Daniels work, and they've been there for about 32 years. They f- speak fluent Swahili. Um, really inspirational people to me. They were such a blessing, and they they took me, you know, took me in. And they have a wonderful ministry up there. They have a church, a school, lots of help, and the, they support lots of orphanages and have built many churches in the area. So this one is one of the ones that was paid for, I think, by an American church. It's very, it's, as you can see, very nice. And they have a Christian school which has got about three hundred children. And they have Awana programs and all sorts of amazing things going on there. It's also a boarding school. So the children are there basically all of the time. Um, And what you find is that in education, if you just get a primary education, secondary, you have to pay. Even if you get a public education for free, when you get to secondary age, you, you get nothing unless you pay. So most no one, pretty much no one goes on to secondary unless they have money. Um, so here, a lot of this is like a boarding school. And if you do go to boarding school, you get sent away, usually eight, nine hours away up country. This is monkeys, as you can see. They were amazing. They'd just be in the trees. They'd come and want to steal your food and all sorts of things. This was a restaurant built in the tree, which was amazing. And it's called, and they had trout. And they just catch it and feed it to you fresh just from the pools. 
These are other missionaries that I met while I was there. This is Kenya. Her name's Kenya. And her husband, Daniel, is there as a pilot. And he's going to be flying... Uh, when he gets his plane out there, he's going to be flying up into the mountains and, you know, giving supplies to missionaries, giving any sort of aid they need, and amazing. And he um, and his wife just got there nine months before I got there. So, and they were again. Um, and this is Tracy, a single lady missionary, and I stayed with her for the three weeks I was in Nanuki. This is the choir. Daniel also teaches the school. Uh, he te- well, he teaches a choir in the school. And the children, lots of camels. You'd see them just walking around the sides of the road. When I went to Nanuki, it's kind of out in the Maasai lands, so it's very, very dry. Um, the strange thing, this is a village here, a typical village. And the strangest part is you could be in some areas of Kenya where it's so lush and green, and you go maybe a few miles down and it's just really dry, dry land. I just had to put a few photos of um, the animals because they were so beautiful. This is an Elkarama, which is one of the largest national reserves in the world. I think it's maybe the fourth largest. And this was just up in the mountains. This is the little village again that we went and visited. This is just a church that there's lots of random churches just sort of anywhere and everywhere um, that were built, but they were all from every sort of religion you could possibly think of. Um, I kind of wrote down just a few um, uh, statistics for you, which was just... Um, that Protestant, 45% in Kenya. Roman Catholic is 33%. Muslim, they say, is 10% in Kenya. Um, indigenous beliefs is 10%. Christianity is not even really in there, but it says that a large majority of Kenyans are Christians, but estimates for the percentage of the population that adheres to Islam or indigenous beliefs vary widely. So there's not really any specific number. And when I went to Tanzania, it was completely different. Um, Tanzania was, uh, I think, was it 30% Christian, 35% Muslim, um, and 35% indigenous beliefs. And then when I went to Zanzibar, it was 99% Muslim. And the whole, it just, there wasn't, you know, it was all Muslim. But in Kenya, on a whole, if you were to go and see... Um, if you were to go and speak to someone about Christianity, the majority of people would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Um, and then you'd ask them, so what does that mean? You know, what, what do you feel that means to be a Christian? They'd have no real understanding. You'd either meet someone who is born again, you know, they're just, I know I'm saved and that's it. But most of them were just like, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. God is everywhere. I mean, on the backs of buses. It's, I mean, it's really just everywhere. Verses, you know, live, you know, you know follow, follow the Lord or, you know, and, and just everywhere. But when you go and ask someone what that really means, there was very few. But at the same time, the openness, you can walk down the, you know, people on a Sunday, you see them walking to church with their Bibles in their hands, and, you know, they're, they're very openly Christian, whereas I think even less so than we are here. Um, so it's, it feels like you can be a Christian there and it not be difficult, if that makes sense, at this point. Um, it's very easy to talk about the Lord with just anyone. Anyone you meet will sit there and happily just listen to you. And... Um, I had so many opportunities of just meeting people on the bus or, you know, randomly walking down the street and we'd just, you know, start talking. And because you were white, to some degree, they'd be like, oh, what are you doing here? Where are you from? You know, so it it would help start conversation. Um, I wanted to just show you, um, I know time is really running out. I I don't know how to really get through. 
as much as there is to get through of four months, but I, I've only gotten through a fraction. Um, I went to Kibera, into the slums, um, and that was an amazing opportunity to see sort of um, the poverty that we really sort of, none of us really had ever, have, could ever even imagine. Um, I'm just going to show you a few of those shots. I've never been in any sort of environment like it in my life. Um, and when you see the gravity of it, um, how huge it is. I mean, Kabir is one of the largest slums in the world. Um, and we got led around by the slum lord. That's what he's called, John. Um, if you don't, then it's very dangerous. Because if you're not known there, it's, it could be a very dangerous you know, sort of environment, hostile environment. But that's, I, I know that's a, a, an aerial view, but that's Kabira. That's how huge it is, and that's taken from the air. But you can imagine how huge it is, really, in real life. This was the maternity unit within the slums, which is actually, um, believe it or not, pretty nice. It was opened in 2003 um, by an Asian doctor who set it up. Um, these are just the group that I went with. Um, and... There was a school there, right? Was well, sort of a centre for children, right in the heart of it. Um, and I just wanted to show you, this is what their sort of living conditions were. This is the school, um, and again, the children were outside with a, a ball they'd made out of plastic bags and stuffed it with, um, you know, t-shirts and anything else they could find. I'm just going to finish off with the stuff that you guys bought from the church. Um, and gave it to, I don't know how many of you put into that box. I know a lot of you gave. I just wanted to show you how well received that was. John was very sick, um, but he had he was much better by the time I left. These were just some of the toys you guys sent. Uh, I'd asked for teething rings because a lot of them are teething at this age, and they, they slow, they're, a lot late, they're late developers, so like even teething and things like that comes a bit later. Uh, because they've had, you know, been been now malnourished, and so this was a real. I tell you what, the room had never been so quiet. And usually, I went in every day, and it was screaming and screaming. And there'd be so many children. As soon as you walk in, they want to be held, so you can't hold forty babies at once. It was very difficult. And so, this was a godsend because they would. They just thought they were amazing. They were completely amazed by this teething ring, and that they could chew on it. And that's Prince there, and this is um. A mobile that you sent, a singing mobile. Now, I don't know how many of you know, but the when I was there, the sort of I think the last month I was there, there was a really bad accident, and five of the children were injured, and one of the children was killed, and um, the lot of them were medically had no sort of attention given. They were given to a clinic. They were sent back to the orphanage with broken bones and you know internal injuries, and it was very difficult. And for me, that was a real challenge because I I didn't. I'm not a nurse, you know, I didn't know how to help these children and they were in pain. Um, but, you know, all you could do is love them and hold them and be there. Chris, again, he's very sick. He's actually about three years old. He still can't walk, he can't stand. His legs are very weak. Um, but these toys were amazing. They loved it. They had something to do in the crib, even though they were in the cribs all day. These are the building blocks that some of you sent. I want to give you a chance. I don't know if any of you have any questions. Um, I know there's so much stuff. I really wish there was more time. I feel like there's so much I did in I haven't covered anything, really. Um, but I've put out loads of stuff for you to look at as well. And some of this is typical. Um, 
some of it I will kind of show you because this is, um, I'll show you just pictures. This is, these are the Maasai here. Maasai tribe are really famous. Um, and they live traditional lifestyles, so they have nothing. You know, they don't have any water, electricity, anything like that. They live in mud huts that they build out of cow dung. And they literally live the most basic of lives they can, you know. Um, this is, they bead, um, all the women bead, and they give their men that they choose, well, the men choose women, but if they accept, the women make their Maasai beads for their men, and it's all designed specifically for them, so it's, it's unique. Um, and they do this, they have all this jingle, they do, they, and then they have a dance, which I'll show you here in a minute. Um, and this one here is what they would wear when they get married. Okay, so they would put this on their heads when they get married. And they would wear all of these things around their necks. And what they do is they have loads of them. They'll have lots of lots of beads. You can see all these later, but they'll have them all at their arms, as much as they possibly can, anywhere and everywhere. Very colorful. And they wear this, which is a shuka, okay? And they would wear this and they tie it, just as you can see. They wear these really wherever they go. And you'll see them in the Maasai lands. And the wonderful thing about it, they're so bright. You can see them from a mile away, you know? They'll be out in the field just with a stick or their spear, which is here. And they'll walk around and they'll have their cows. And most of the time, they're just out roaming the, the lands, the plains. And they'll wear them over themselves like this. And this here is um, a Maasai sword, which is um, actually, this is actually a Maasai who, who used this, and I was able to get this from him, which is a, rare, a rarity, but um, amazing. And a Maasai, in order to be a Maasai warrior, you have to have killed a lion. It's part of their sort of in, introduction into the Maasai, um, Maasai. So unless you kill the lion, you're not classed as a Maasai warrior or a man, so you have to have killed the lion. Um, and all they carry are their swords and their spears, generally, that's all they have. So, and they start their fires the old-fashioned way, which is what this is. Um, they taught me how to do this. Don't, I wasn't very good. Um, but you have to, I think it takes a lot of practice to get this down. But they would obviously do this until they get their little bit of a spark, and then they blow it into their um, sort of grass, and they start their fires that way. And that's how they start every, every fire they have to. Um, and this here, the Daniels were in Ethiopia. Um, he was there teaching and preaching while I was there. And this is an Ethiopian dress, which he brought back as a gift to me. Um, and as you can see, it's very beautiful. Um, and the, it, Ethiopia is also predominantly Muslim, so a lot of the women will have their heads covered, as you'll see. They'll have a headscarf on, and they'll have more wrapped around them. And this, and it's very warm, believe it or not. It's really thick, beautiful. Um, yeah, so this is how a traditional, this is a kind of Maasai warrior in himself. They also did sell the shields. I couldn't bring everything back with me, unfortunately. I know, it's terrible. So I'm just going to show you, um, instead of showing you all the pictures, I'm just going to show you one or two video clips now, and then I will let you go. I know it's late. So here we go. This will be the Maasai dancing. The most amazing thing is the Maasai jump. That's their traditional thing, and they chant the whole time. Um, and they'll have welcome songs, and they'll have um, um, a wedding song, and a, a song for a funeral. They have these certain chants for different events. And as you can see, all their beads and things that they've got on, and they'll shake it on their neck. 
I was a little bit scared. They came right up to me. I was like, I'm oh, there. My video didn't um, video for long, unfortunately, because the memory card wasn't that. Um, that. <laughs> Okay, so that's just a little bit of the Maasai dancing. Now they have to welcome you into their land. If you come onto their land, they have to give you a welcome song. If they don't, they can kill you. That's how, that's how it sits. You have, to be, you have to be welcomed by them. So that is them welcoming me and a few of the other people I was with to their, to their territory. If they don't, then you shouldn't be there. So it's a, very, it's a, very, um, it's a wonderful thing that I got to see and meet them. Um, Okay, I'm just going to show you a little bit of the singing. This is my church again that I was um, I was in for the longest time, and you know they had no instruments or anything, but their voices they would all harmonise, and it just sounds so beautiful. I'm just going to show you some. <laughs> I'll give you the beginning of that song. This is Mrs. Daniels, and she was teaching in Swahili. She was fluent in Swahili. She got into Say Daniels 316. This is another orphanage that a pastor runs in the in the New Nibor area, and he took in about 37 children, um, him and his wife, and that's the orphanage that they they now have. Which you heard that song already. <laughs> <laughs> 
There you go. Okay. Well, I think I'll stop there because I know it's late. Um, there's plenty more I could show you, but um, I'll have to let you, at some point, you can see um, any of that if you want to at any point. There's so much more there, but um, thanks for listening anyway. I hope that gave you a little bit of an insight into what it was like while I was there. I don't know if any of you have any questions, but, you know, of course, if there's anything you really want to know, then I'll be happy to share anything or try and answer the questions, that is. <laughs> yes, Pete. Um, there's only to get um, a sort of to get a firearm which out there actually is really the only way you can protect yourself most of them come in gangs there's a lot of tribalism so there's a lot of gangs they'll come in groups um, so um, to get a firearm is very very difficult for, from sort of security element. So they don't don't give them very easily. But there's only two missionaries out there, that, the ones that have been out there for about 35 years, and they live out in middle of nowhere. They were allowed to have a firearm for that very reason, only because they are sort of have nothing around them in which to protect themselves. But anybody who's sort of in the compound of, you know, the police, they say no, you can't have one because the police will protect you. And as you'll know, the police really don't do anything. And they're bribed by just about anything. So you can pay them off to do anything. In fact, most of the robberies happen from inside. The security men who you're paying to guard your house tend to let people in your house. That's how it works. Um, so you'll find that the Camfields, they actually have people from the church, the men in the church that work for them. And in a way, it's giving them work, which they need. And they need a job. So they have a lot. They've employed quite a few people from the church, that, the men in the church that work for them. Um, but it's very difficult to get um, any sort of security or firearm. So you just have to, you know, pray. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they have security through the night. Like, wherever we were, uh, now they're in the new house. Um, they have a guard at night, through, through the night. Yeah. So... It's very strange to, to have a guard anywhere you went, like wherever I went. In fact, when I was in the mountains, there was a few nights where I was on my own because Tracy had to go to a doctor's appointment back in Nairobi, which is about four or five-hour drive. And um, she was... Um, I think I, I had a Maasai, a Maasai warrior. He, he was one of the guards for the school, and he came and guarded. It was just really strange, you know. I went out in the morning, and it was about five o'clock and 6 o'clock in the morning when we were supposed to be leaving to get off, and he's there, stood outside the house with his sword... And I was like, hmm. you know, just really just a completely different way of, you know, a way of life. But, you know, yeah, it's your only way of protection, really. Yes, Steve. Um, well, that's a difficult one. So many things. I think it was, um, some people were saying the culture shock when I got there, and it did take me a while to adjust, don't get me wrong, it was so, so different. But I felt after a little while, probably after two weeks, three weeks, something like that, I felt a little, I just sort of felt like I started to feel at home. Whereas, um, and it's strange to say that, that was God, really, completely God, because um, you know, it couldn't be any further from what I know. Um, but I loved the simplicity of that, their life. And they were so happy. I think, for me, that was the, the... You know, it's humbling to be in a place like that where you have so much and they have nothing. And I mean nothing. And so 
for me, coming back, it was just the shock of how nice everything is. I mean, I've never looked at England as being... Like when I got in Birmingham, you know, I've never seen Birmingham as like... But it was like, wow, you have roads and you have, you know, I just couldn't get over it. I mean, I have a video clip on here of of the road, just of me driving on this journey. It was about four or five hours on this road. We were doing this the whole time. We were literally, that's how it was. And, you know, people have back problems. Missionaries are constantly being having to go back to America because they're getting sick and there's so much illness. And I thank God I wasn't sick really apart from maybe a few upset stomachs or whatever. I was not sick at all. And that was completely hard. And, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's, um, I think it's just the poverty in comparison to here. But how, how much we have in terms of education, our kids get everything. I mean, we have a good education system in comparison to them. They have, we have a free education system. I know that sounds like, I know that it could be improved. But um, to me, our kids get the opportunity to have that. Except they don't appreciate it because they get given it. Those children are desperate. You know, I met so many boys who were 13, 14. They were so smart. They were bright. And they'll never get to go to school, you know, not unless someone pays for them to go. They'd lost their parents in post-election violence. They lost their parents to AIDS. They'd lost their parents at whatever. They were working at, at, from as young as eight, nine years old. So um, that, for me, the appreciation for what we have has to be the one thing that hits you. And almost you feel, or I felt almost sick to my stomach at times how much we have in comparison to where I was living out there and the people that I got to go into their homes. And this mission, this pastor that I was pastor of Santon, they have five children. One was killed by a matatu, run over. The other four children live in a one, they live in a one-room place, all six of them, one room, with a kitchen, the toilet's outside a hole, and they have one room. And, you know, they were the happiest family I've ever met. And they spend their life in one room together. And I thought, how could we... We wouldn't be happy in that because we've had so much more. But they don't know any better. They said, Shell, this is the nicest house we've ever had. Because the church are giving them... The church are supporting them. That's more money than he's ever made in his life. So, for me, those were the things that, um, you know, you just you almost felt... I found it very hard to leave because of that reason. Because you just want to be able to help them you know you want to be able to give them something and um yeah um i would encourage anyone to go because i do think it changes everything in your perspective of what you have and what god has blessed you with and how much more responsible we need to be to give to other people do you know what i mean we are we have so much to give and we don't we hoard everything we we keep it all because we think we might need it for a rainy day The, the 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 thing is we have so much and god says the more you have the more that you should be giving. And we just, in our culture, we hold on to it. I went into the poorest homes, and they offered me everything they had, you know, every bit of food they had. And to me, that was humbling. That was amazing, you know. Um, they are, um, they really are an amazing people. Um, so. What should we be praying for? Yeah, I think the problem is as well, on the reverse of that, the only sort of downside to Kenyans that I felt was they always expected something. If you were white, they want you to give them something for free. Like, give me something. You got it. You're rich. You know, that is the attitude. And they really do say that to you. I mean, they'd even come up to my face and say that. Well, you're rich. Give me something. The kids would come up and just say, give me, give me. 
And I'd say tougher, darling, which is please. They wouldn't even know what that word meant. There's no manners. It's not accustomed. It's, it's not that they mean it that way. They just don't, they don't, not used to ever saying them. But I think for me, it would be, um, there is a, there are a lot of people in the camp. I didn't get to show you any of those pictures. In the camp we did, 67 children, I wanted to let you know that, um, professed salvation in that week we were there. 67. And we had 250. And that was from the very poor areas. Now, you don't know how many of those are going to be, you know, or, you know, are genuine conversions, but 67. And that was amazing to see. And the children, um, the poverty there is not because the country isn't wealthy. You know, that's the saddest part. And I think what we have to pray for is the government. That's a big thing. Um, that's a big thing to pray for, but it is. You know, there's nothing you can do. You can't go in there and just give money, money, money. It's not going to help them. But there are things we could do, like giving to the orphanages, people that we can practically give to that would help. The church itself, they want to build on and make better Sunday school rooms, make this. They could never raise enough money there to build that sort of thing. Whereas for us, a few thousand pounds goes a long way for them. So things like that, which would better the ministry. Um, the Camfields... It's hard out there. I'm not going to lie to you. I mean, the, the environment is difficult. It's not easy. Um, you know, everything is a little bit harder because it is simple. Um, but I think it makes you appreciate things. But I do. I think the Camfields desperately need a car or a van or something that's transportable that's not like this thing that they've got now because it's breaking down. That's something I know that they would appreciate prayer on because they need something that's more like a 4x4, four four, which everybody needs out there but don't have the money to buy. Um, and just for the children, you know, God, God is saving the children, and that is an amazing thing to see, but there's so many children. There's such a need out there for the children to be taken in. Um, so off the top of my head, I think that's, that's all I can think of. But Okay, I'll let you go now. Thanks for listening. <laughs>